Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to go ahead and read our sermon text today, which is relatively brief, and then we're going to back up and work our way through earlier sections of Acts for our first point, and uh, then we will, we will deal with our primary text during the second point of the message. Uh, I'm calling the sermon today, When Christians Disagree. When Christians Disagree, and uh, the text starts in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, and again, this is the Word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, if you've read Acts before, you're familiar with this section, but maybe you haven't read it before, or if you're not as familiar with the book of Acts, first time you hear this paragraph, it is not what you are expecting. (laughs) Paul and Barnabas are about to go into a conflict that leads to them separating, parting ways. And as far as we know, Paul and Barnabas will never work together again. Pretty astonishing stuff here. So, I want to back up and look at the past. I've got three points to the sermon. Number one, uh, the unified past. Number two, the divided present And number three, the reconciled future. Number one, the unified past. Number two, the divided present. And number three, the reconciled future. And I want to go back in time now, so turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And we're just going to look at a smattering of passages throughout Acts to kind of set the context to remind us of what all, who who these men are, Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark, and Silas will also be there as well. Here's the first mention we get of Barnabas, you may remember. The church has just been born for just a few months old, perhaps, at this point. And look at verse 34 of Acts chapter 4. Acts 4.34, this is the Jerusalem church. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's your introduction to Barnabas. I can put the map back up on the screen there. And you may remember the island right there of Cyprus. That is where Barnabas owns some property. We don't know if he sold the property in Cyprus or other property owned near Jerusalem, but he sold property and gave it to the Jerusalem apostles. And he was unbelievably self-sacrificial, generous. I mean, can you… Let's just so hard to translate the Bible into real life. I think I said this a few months ago. Imagine you, ha- you owned a lake house, and you sold the lake house, and you took 100% of the proceeds, a couple hundred thousand dollars, and gave it to a local church, I mean, or gave it to a ministry. That is 
astonishing level of generosity. And this was not something Barnabas was having his arm twisted to do. Barnabas was glad to do this. He was glad to help. So, he sold property, he gave all of it to the apostles, and he just wanted to help others who were in need. So, you can see Barnabas was a a good man, uh, a, a wonderful and godly man. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. You'll remember Paul, Saul at the time, uh, was the name he was going by, was threatening the church, trying to kill Christians and imprison them. On the way to Damascus, he is dramatically converted. And if you look down in chapter 9, all the way down at verse 26, you will remember what happens when everyone is afraid. Remember this, Paul has just become a Christian, and nobody is trusting him because it's like, this guy was trying to put us in jail, and now he acts like he just loves the Lord, so he can come to our Bible study and figure out where we live so he can put us in jail. It's clearly some kind, of, some kind of fraud, some kind of hypocrisy on Paul's part. That's what they're thinking. Who's the first person to put uh, his arm around Paul? It's Barnabas, uh, chapter 9, verse 26. When he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, understandably so. For they did not believe that he was a disciple, that he was a true disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So here you see Barnabas's personality. Barnabas was a man who cared greatly for others. He was always encouraging others, and he tended to see the most positive aspect of other people. So when he looks at Saul, everybody else sees this guy is lying. He says he's a follower of Jesus just so he can come to the church and investigate and understand who we are so he can better persecute us. But Barnabas is the first to say, no, I met with him. I believe he is genuinely converted, and I believe we should, we should trust that the Lord has converted him. This is not false. And Barnabas there, showing this encouragement, brings in Saul and introduces him first to some of the apostles. Now, go with me forward to chapter 11 of Acts, verse 22. You'll remember, if you look at our map, you remember Barnabas is sent north to Antioch, that church there, to do some work. And uh, if you look with me at verse 22, you'll see here, uh, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. You can see again on the map there, Tarsus, Paul's hometown, was not that far away. Uh, Barnabas travels to Tarsus, finds Paul, and brings him back to Antioch. Again, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So here's Paul and Barnabas teaming up for the first time, and they are discipling and teaching the believers in Antioch, both Jewish and non-Jewish Gentile believers, and they are seeing many people come to know the Lord and many people grow in their faith. Now look at verse 20, uh, 29. They hear that a famine is going to come, verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea down south, and they did so, sending it to the elders of Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, in this time, Luke interrupts the flow to to tell us about Peter's imprisonment, and if you look down, remember here John Mark is introduced in verse 12 of chapter 12. This is back in Jerusalem. Peter is in jail under Herod. And look at 12.12, 12. 
Peter is released by an angel. It says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, just remember this. John Mark, his mother Mary, must have been wealthy. This house is a nice large house that is able to accommodate many Christians. A whole lot of people think this is the same house from Acts 1 with 120 people gathered together in the house. A lot of people think it's also the house of the Lord's Supper that had a large upper room. Very likely it's the same house. Can't prove that. Now, I, I don't like speculating much at all in my preaching, okay? It makes me very nervous to speculate. But a lot of people make a similar speculation. I would not bank my hopes on this, okay? This is not in the text. This is a guess, an educated guess, but it could be wrong. I just think it's possible. You can look at a lot of study Bibles. We'll talk about this as a possibility. Since John Mark's home was a large home in the city of Jerusalem, how many of the early Christians would have had a large home in Jerusalem? Probably not a large group of people. We're probably talking about a small group of people with a large home that could hold 100 plus people in it. And large homes often had a second story. So if this is the home of the Lord's Supper, it is possible. And there's some argument about this. Do you remember that weird two verses in Mark, only in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, uh, when Jesus is in the garden, it says a young man was following him, and the disciples are all scattering, and this young man, the soldiers grab him by the cloak, and he fled naked into the city. Just, where did that come from? It's just, it's Mark 14, verses 51 and 52. It just comes out of nowhere. It's, it's not in Matthew, Luke, or John, and here's just a guess. I will not stake my life on it. That might be John Mark himself. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. He would have known about this, and if, it, if the Lord's Supper happened in his house, and he's a young man, and he hears the disciples leaving, perhaps he followed them into the garden, and maybe he is himself the young man who fled naked into the night in shame, fleeing from Jesus as the soldiers grabbed his, basically what he was sleeping in, just one single garment that he would have been wearing that night, perhaps. I, I won't argue about that, but perhaps that is the case. Either way, John is from this wealthy home in Jerusalem where his mother Mary was. Look down at the end of this chapter. So, we know Paul and Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem for a famine relief visit, verse 25 of chapter 12. They're returning. And look at this. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, going back to Antioch, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, John Mark travels back from Jerusalem up north to Antioch. And then the Antioch church decides at the leading of the Spirit through a word of prophecy. Look at verse 2. While they, this is 13.2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, this is prophecy, the Spirit is speaking fresh revelation, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, they, they, they are, are sent off, but you'll notice here, uh, if you skip down to verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is on the island of Cyprus on the map here, and they came to Perga. Here, I'll give you a better map. <laughs> here you go. So, they traveled to Paphos, which is down here, and then they set sail, and they end up here at Perga on the coast. When they get to Perga, do you notice what happens? Verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's on the island of Cyprus. They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them, so I'll draw an arrow here, to return to his hometown in Jerusalem. So, John Mark leaves them here. There's no comment made about it. Just He leaves, he heads to Jerusalem. That's all we hear. Nothing positive or negative is said. If this is all we had, we might think that was part of the plan, that John Mark was going to travel with them partway, and then he would just leave. Maybe that was just the plan. We don't know what was going on. Well, come to find out a little later in Acts, Paul did not look with a smile 
upon John Mark leaving them at this moment. Paul saw it as a form of desertion uh, and an important moment in their mission together. Uh, in chapter 13, or excuse me, let's go to chapter 15. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had again traveled, and this time they, they had finished their, their missionary journey. They traveled back to Antioch, and then there was a big dispute about the gospel, so they traveled south to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. That was the last two sermons. Remind you of verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. If you look down at verse 12. Paul and Barnabas stand side by side defending the gospel in Jerusalem, verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now look down at verse 22. So in Jerusalem, here's what's decided. Then it seemed good to the apostles in Jerusalem and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas. This man is going to become an important figure in the rest of Acts, also known as Silvanus. In some of Paul's letters, he calls him Silvanus. Leading men among the brothers with the following letter, and there's the letter that, that Greg uh, looked at with us uh, last week. Look at verse 30. So they, they were sent off that is from Jerusalem to Antioch. They were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those uh, who had those who had sent them. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now I know it sounds like we're all over the place. I promise you, this is going somewhere. But I got another technical thing to mention here. Verse 34 is missing in most modern translations. Uh, some translations will have a bracket around verse 34, which says something along the lines of, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Uh, older translations just have it in the text like normal. Some bracket it, some don't have it at all, like the ESV does not include it except in a footnote. I always have to address this because people who don't know about this stuff, it can really throw someone for a loop. Uh, in, the, in the earliest and best manuscripts we have of the… Of the, of the uh, it's not the Gospel of Acts, the Book of Acts, the earliest and best manuscripts of this book do not include verse 34 in it. So we do not think, I do not think verse 34 was originally part of Acts. I believe it was added, as do many people, we believe it was added centuries later by a manuscript copyist trying to harmonize the story with verse 40. Now, verse 40 says, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Now, just real quick, I don't want to spend a long time on this point. Here's all that's going on. We're told that… Uh, Silas and Barsabbas are up in Antioch, and then we're told that they left and went back to Jerusalem, right? So Silas and Antioch left Antioch and went to Jerusalem. And a few verses later, where's Silas? He's back in Antioch with Paul. And people go, wait, I thought he left. Well, the answer is he left and came back. That's the pretty obvious answer. And, but some copyist goes, no, no, it's a contradiction, so let me try to smooth it out. And they added the verse, but Silas remained. Well, Silas didn't remain. <laughs> Silas went with them back to Jerusalem. It says they went to Jerusalem. And then Silas, no doubt, brought news back from Jerusalem to Antioch of how the church in Jerusalem had received what had happened. I think that's the best explanation of why it's not in the earliest and best manuscripts. So, all that aside, here is the first main point. We have before us the unified past. Kevin Young said, you know, you got Batman and Robin, and you've got Paul and Barnabas. 
I was like, wow, I wasn't going to go there, but okay. Uh, you, you, this, is the, this is the incredible di- dynamic duo. This is Paul and Barnabas. You can't get better than this. The, Paul and Barnabas were the incredible team. You have Barnabas who, who leans toward the compassion, and Paul who's an incredible teacher of truth. They were a great complement to one another. And at this moment, it seems like everything is going the right way. Everything seems great. Their past is unified. Barnabas is as godly as you can come. The Bible calls him a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Paul is... Paul is going to write, what is it, 13 books of the New Testament? I mean, Paul's going to write about half the New Testament books before it's all over. I mean, these, these are two of the greatest men of the early church. It would be an honor and privilege to spend an hour at lunch talking to either of these men. It would be astonishing. So, how in the world is it that something that was so good and so unified in the past could suddenly become so divided in the present? Well, let's move to point number two, the divided present. I'm going to read this passage again. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Let's just stop there. Now, you remember here up on our map that these cities right here, uh, those particular cities, they had been threatened with a false gospel. Remember what Paul had done? He got back from the trip and he had sent off the letter of Galatians to those Galatian churches and said, listen, do not add anything to faith in Christ for your salvation. It is only by faith alone. And Paul goes to Jerusalem to settle this dispute before the the public, before the apostles and believers. And now it's settled. They've got a letter to send around. It's been more than a year. Paul is itching to know how those churches are doing. And so they decide to make a trip back to those churches. But right at this moment is where the conflict arises. Verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, that island there where Barnabas was originally from. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So this next map here will show you this is Paul's trip. He returns from Jerusalem to Antioch, and that's the the route he's going to begin taking, uh, but not with Barnabas now. He's going to be taking Silas with him. Well, let's look back again. This is an important but brief passage. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. You may remember Colossians 4.10 tells us that Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. Very interesting little fact. Perhaps that has factored into Barnabas' opinion, but maybe not. I'm not going to say that that is for sure true. Here is what I will tell you. The the conflict that arises here is something that stumps a lot of commentators and preachers. even, even if I were to guess right now, if I, if I were just to let you kind of tell your opinion, my guess is there would be a pretty big split in this room as to who's in the wrong in this story. I, I could see a lot of us saying, you know what, Barnabas' argument makes a lot of sense. It, it, I, can we just kind of read between the lines here? What, what is Barnabas' argument? Barnabas is going, hey, Paul, my, my cousin, John Mark, he, he is, he's a young man. Yes, he got perhaps fearful and timid, and he, he backed away and he left us last time, but he's a young man. He's, he hasn't had a lot of time to be tested and proven. I know. I can vouch for him. He loves the Lord, and he wants to accompany us on this trip. Let, let's let him go with us. I, I think it would be wonderful for him. It would be an encouragement to him. He's a young disciple. We don't need to squelch the flame of his faith. We need to blow it into, into, into a large flame. We need to encourage him. We need to bring him along. And I, I think this time he will, he will serve us honestly and, and with integrity. Say, okay. 
Yeah, I can see a lot of us going, that sounds like the right thing to do. You're caring about this, this poor young Christian. Yes, he failed, but he was a young man, and let's give him a second chance. But can't you hear Paul's argument on the other side? Paul's going, we have a life or death gospel mission in front of us. Eternal souls are at stake in this. We've got to go forward and be bold in preaching the gospel. And if our tiny little team of three or four people, if not everyone on our team is reliable, and we already know John Mark has proven himself unreliable in 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 an almost identical missionary trip just a couple years ago, if he backs out on us again, do you know how that threatens the very mission of spreading this gospel? It may threaten our entire endeavor. It may mess up our entire trip. People may not hear the gospel who would otherwise hear the gospel if we bring John Mark along. I do not think this is wise. And Paul puts his feet into the dirt and says, I'm not moving. And then Barnabas goes, Paul, I I think you are being too rigid here. I don't think… Don't you remember when everyone didn't want you to come into town? You remember this, Paul? Have you read Acts 9, Paul? You remember that? Remember how I was there for you, man? I was there for you. No one else was standing up for you. Here I am, the son of encouragement. You guys even named me this. The apostles did. And I I, want to encourage someone. When no one wanted you, I brought you in under my wing. And I welcomed you before the apostles. And that's why the Jerusalem church accepted you. This is my, you know, this is my thing, Paul. This is what I do. I'm I'm the son of encouragement. And and Paul says, listen, I understand that. I understand that. And you you were right to bring me in. That was the right thing to do. But this time is different. This is not the same as what I was going through. No, 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 no. John Mark has proven unreliable. And, we, you know, it's kind of like you're driving your car. If, the, if you had a flat tire and you patch it, you may not want to take that tire on the thousand-mile road trip, okay? You probably want to get a new tire. You want to be sure this thing's not going to fall apart halfway through the journey. And so, they dig their heels in. And the, the word, I think it's the word uh, a paroxysm, I think is the English word. The Greek word looks almost identical. Uh, it can be a, an outburst of anger or an intense emotion. Uh, it could be almost like a spasm. You can have a paroxysm of, of anxiety. Uh, th- this is the Greek word, paroxysma. I don't know how to say it. Paroxysmos, I think is the Greek word, which looks like our English word paroxysm. And it is this intense word for a, a being provoked. It's, it's the same word that will be used in chapter 17 when Paul is in Athens and he sees all the idols and he was provoked in spirit. This is a strong emotion of disapproval that Paul has in Acts 17 with the same exact word. Well, what do we make of this story? Some commentators, including uh, wonderful commentators like John Calvin, will say Paul is clearly in the wrong on this one. And others will say, no, 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 no. Barnabas is being encouraging to a fault, accepting to a fault. He's bending too far, and and you'll have people on, on both sides. I don't know for sure what to say about some of this, so I, I, I'll tell you just my, my best shot on this, okay? My guess is that there were some moments of real sin between Paul and Barnabas in this moment. I think that it would not… That may be shocking, you know, we think Paul doesn't sin. Paul does, Paul does still commit sins at time. Read Romans 7. Uh, so, I, my guess is that the paroxysm, this, this intense moment of anger between them created some actual, a moment of real, perhaps sinful anger, perhaps going both directions between Paul and Barnabas, which is quite shocking to see. But I am not convinced that them parting ways was automatically and deeply sinful in and of itself. And, and I, I'm going to give you three points that I got straight from Kevin DeYoung in his sermon on this text. Uh, three, three points about conflict that I found helpful from DeYoung. Number one, conflict is frequent. This is under main point two, the divided present. Number one, conflict is frequently surprising. Now, isn't this the case? I mean, you, you could talk about with roommates, you could talk about with close friends, you could talk about in marriage, you could talk about all kinds of things, coworkers, maybe you own a business with someone else. 
Is it not true that so oftentimes conflict seems to come out of nowhere? Just suddenly, unexpectedly, everything seemed to be sailing along wonderfully, and then out of left field, this, this paroxysm, this interruption comes alongside. Something shakes us. Even amongst godly people, there can be sudden, unexpected conflict that rises. Number two, conflict is often over the small stuff or secondary matters. Isn't it almost ironic that the chapter in Acts that's all about unity, which is chapter 15, ends with division? What's, act, what, what's, what's the Jerusalem council about that Paul and Barnabas fought about? What, what, we're going to be unified in the gospel. And they say, listen, it's by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone that we are saved. It is not by circumcision and Mosaic law. We're going to find unity in all the apostles and elders in the church of Jerusalem. They all agree on the gospel. There is, there is a massive moment of unity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. They even write a letter, a unifying letter that's passed around to these churches. This is the great win for unity in chapter 15, and it ends with sudden division between two of the leaders in that very fight, which is just interesting. Now, listen, this is not a division over doctrinal issues. This is very important. Paul and Barnabas are not splitting over justification by faith. That's a split that you need to make, you must make over that. The, the, the Protestant reformers in the 1500s were absolutely right to split, to, well, to protest, right? That's what the word Protestant means. They protest the Catholic Church's teaching on justification, and then they leave in the Reformation. That was a godly split, a godly division, because we must divide over the truth of the gospel. This was not over a primary doctrinal issue. It wasn't even over a secondary doctrinal issue at all. This was over, comparatively, a smaller matter. But I don't know if Paul and Barnabas would have said it was small if you were there that day. I think they would say, no, this, this really mattered, and, and, it, and it did matter. Now, I, I, I want to be careful here, but just, just think. Even in the last year, one of the things that, even with us, if we're being honest, that caused a little friction was the, the masks during COVID. Now, you're like, please don't, let's not bring all that up right now. But it's just, it's just amazing. Five years, our church is sailing along wonderfully, and the first time there was a real tension between our members, I think, was about a piece of cloth over your face. And it's like, sometimes the small stuff is where big conflict can occur. And so, we, we just need to keep this in mind. It is it's not going to be necessarily over primary doctrinal issues that we might have some big divisive thing. It might be something seemingly silly, <laughs> seemingly small, where, where conflict arises and where we need to work very carefully to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Didn't Paul write that verse? Number three, conflict is sometimes unavoidable. Conflict is sometimes unavoidable. And Derek Thomas had a wonderful sermon on this text, but he pointed me to Ken Sandy's book on, uh, called the, the Peacemaker. I have not read this book yet. I've only read a few excerpts, but I want to read one uh, that Derek Thomas pointed out in his sermon. And he, he's, people call Ken Sandy the expert on peacemaking in the church. I mean, everybody you could think of endorses him and just says, this book is the one-stop place for this topic. Uh, one day I hope to read more of it, but I haven't read much of it. But here's the part that I read for our text today because he mentions Acts 15. This is what Ken Sandy says. There are four primary causes of conflict. Just, just listen. You don't have to write all this down, but just listen. Number one, some disputes arise because of misunderstandings resulting from poor communication, right? Some conflicts come from just a simple miscommunication, and, and because of a misunderstanding, conflict arises. Number two, there could be differences in values, goals, gifts, calling, priorities, expectations, 
interests or opinions that can also lead to conflict. I'll come back to that one because he thinks that this is in that category. Number three, there could be competition or disagreement about limited resources such, such as time or money, uh, and that could be a frequent source of dispute in families, churches, and businesses, time and money, limited resources. And number four, many conflicts are caused or aggravated by sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. It is possible to disagree passionately with someone and not sin. That's, that needs to be said. It is possible to disagree passionately with someone about a biblical issue and to not sin. Now, it is very easy to sin. And James says the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So if we feel anger rising in our conflict, we need to do everything we can oftentimes to pull that down to make sure, you know, we often call it godly anger when it's not. (laughs) So we need to be so careful and suspicious of our own motives. But to get back to Paul and Barnabas, I think you have here differences, what he calls here, in goals, priorities, and expectations. Goals and priorities. I think that is where the difference lies. For Barnabas, caring for John Mark was of utmost importance. For Paul, the mission was of utmost importance. And they had, an, I think, an honest disagreement about priorities. And instead of sitting there and debating it for the next five years and becoming increasingly more angry at each other, they just said, okay, Barnabas, you take John Mark, head back to your homeland there of Cyprus. I'm going to take Silas. I'm going to head on another journey. And what perhaps Satan meant for evil, God meant for good, because now you've got two missionary teams instead of one. You know what I'm supposed to say? Take that. <laughs> so, God, Romans 8.28 does not uh, stop working, even in the midst of conflict, and even if there's moments of sin, this must be repented of. The sin must be repented of. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the Lord took a conflict about one missionary team and turned it into two missionary teams that are traveling in two different directions and covering twice the ground in, in the same amount of time. So, Romans 8.28 is alive and well, as always, in this particular moment. Number three the reconciled future. So, number one was the unified past of the main points, number two, the divided present, and number three, the reconciled future. And I uh, found this to be uh, quite encouraging. If you, let me add one more point here before I, before I get to point number three. Kevin Young was good to point out. We need to be careful about this. When, when he says some conflict is unavoidable, He's not talking about something like marriage, where you say, well, we don't really like each other as much. We're not really agreeing on certain things, so we tried to work it out, but we're just going to split over time. Be careful here. Uh, that, that kind of conflict is not to be excused. Uh, when, when there's been a covenant that's been made between individuals, that, that's, that's not to be, to be excused. When we are in conflict, we, we need help. We need help from people around us who know us and care about us because we need to be very suspicious of our own motives in our own conflict. So, if there is a moment of conflict that arises between you and anyone in your life, whether a member of your church or not, part of your family or not, a co-worker, I would say be suspicious immediately and often of your motives because our motives are often flavored by selfishness, pride, convenience, wanting to be proven right, wanting to put someone down. We need to be oh so careful about our motives. So, you need other people around you who you can trust, a very small group of people that you trust, that you can lay out some of the situation before them and get godly, truthful, wise, loving feedback. You you don't want, uh, what is it, like a yes man or a yes woman to be this person? I think you're always right. 
Everything you say is true. You know, this is why you're my best friend. Uh, we don't want that, okay? Uh, we, we don't want that. We, we want people in our lives who are going to annoy us with the truth at the right time. Someone who loves you enough to say, listen, I love you and I see the evidence of God's grace in your life in so many ways. But on this point, I really think your friend has a point and I don't know that you're seeing it yet. I, I really do think they're saying something that is wise and helpful. I think you should at least seriously consider their perspective before going ahead with a dramatic decision. Also, conflict should be something that we are always working for unity. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it quickly. Just listen to these words from, again, the Apostle Paul. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. If possible, listen, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, if possible, so long as it depends, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We need to have the ability to have an instinct to seek and pursue unity. But again, there will still sometimes come a point where conflict is unavoidable. Let me say a couple other things. This conflict, I do not believe in the long run, was ultimately primarily a, a sin issue. So what, what I mean is, I don't think this was Paul going, well, Barnabas, if you've read Galatians chapter 2, do you remember when you went with Peter and you started eating only with the Jewish believers and you denied the gospel with your actions? I'm still a little bitter about what you did, Barnabas, so I don't want to travel with you on this trip. And so we're splitting. That would be evil to the core, and that is not what's going on. I just don't believe that the Apostle Paul would have succumbed to that kind of thing in that moment. I, I don't think th this is that kind of thing. I think this is a, a, a wisdom call difference that was passionately held. Okay, moving now officially now to point three, the reconciled future. And just a few encouraging things to look at. Uh, if you, would you turn with me to Colossians 4? And while you are turning there, I want to read another text from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So, Colossians chapter 4, I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul mentions Barnabas. Now, this is written later than these events. Paul mentions Barnabas as a commendable person who is admirable in his faith. He says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So, he, com he compliments Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, which comes later in his life. But Colossians 4 is particularly encouraging. So, here's what I'm saying. Paul and Barnabas do end up, in some way, uh, ironing out their problems, and they are clearly uh, on positive terms by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians. What about John Mark? This is what I found so encouraging this week, thinking about this, and Derek Thomas had some wonderful uh, information on this. John Mark. So, young man, failed in a massive way on the first missionary journey. Probably out of fear, maybe, something along those lines. He backs out, middle of the journey, leaves and goes home. We don't know why. There's all kinds of conjecture. We just don't know why. But he left, and Paul says he deserted us. This is not good. Well, what are we going to do with John Mark? Have you ever failed? So, imagine your past. You know, you ever made some big mistake? Maybe it was something that was publicly known. Maybe it wasn't, but some kind of big blunder, and you're just wondering, maybe John Mark's wondering, you know, have I just ruined my future life of ministry? Can I not be of any help, or can I not be productive, or 
be helpful to glorifying the Lord with my life if I just ruined everything because Paul chose not to take me along? What's the future of John Mark? Well, look at Colossians 4, verse 10. This is written about 10, 11 years later by Paul when he's in his Roman imprisonment. Verse 10 of Colossians 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom, concerning Mark, you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the, of the circumcision, that is, Jewish believers, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So, he calls Mark a fellow worker with Paul for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Now, that, that is wonderfully encouraging. Paul says, receive Mark. He's a comfort to me. He's a fellow worker with me. That, that is an encouraging sign that John Mark has repented, and his life really is li- being lived boldly for the Lord. But turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we just started going through 2 Timothy on Thursday evenings. But 2 Timothy 4, Paul's last letter before his martyrdom in Rome. This is a later Roman imprisonment, a much, much worse uh, Roman imprisonment as he faces death before Nero. And this is just wonderful. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. So Luke, the author of Acts, 2 Timothy 4, 11, Luke, the author of Acts, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That is a sign of a reconciled future. Yes, there was this momentary rift between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. But Paul will later compliment John Mark greatly, and here, in some of the last words Paul would perhaps ever write, at least that we have recorded, these are the last words Paul ever wrote, and in those words, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And turn with me to 1 Peter, all the way to the right, near the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter, who also will be martyred in what he calls Babylon, but we know as Rome, uh, look at uh, verse 12 of 1 Peter 5. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, we believe that's a church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, this verse right here is significant because according to numerous early church fathers, uh, I think there's at least three or four different early church fathers, Eusebius and Irenaeus and Papias and others who, who talk about this all separately between the years of about 140 A.D. to about 300. 40 A.D., so this is soon after the death of the apostles, what do we find out? We find out that Mark was a traveling companion with Peter, which is confirmed right here, right? Peter's right… I mean, Mark is with Peter in Rome, and we are told by early church history repeatedly that Mark, as he was writing his gospel, was relying primarily on Peter as his primary eyewitness as he wrote his gospel. So here's the part that's just so moving to me. The John Mark who abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, which was a sin. If there's any sin here, that's crystal clear. His leaving them was clearly sinfully wrong. Paul then rejects him for the second missionary journey. His cousin Barnabas accepts him and takes him to Cyprus. He disappears for a little while from the New Testament, and he reappears being encouraged by Paul. Paul calls him uh, encouraging, encouraging words, and then he ends up with Peter 
writing the Gospel of Mark, which means God chose John Mark after his failure and his repentance to then write one of the Gospels of the New Testament, one of the most important books that has ever and will ever be written. So, can God use a failure, redeem their life, turn them around, and use them greatly for His kingdom? John Mark is a testimony that, yes, Maybe he was one of the men. I won't stake my life on this, but maybe he was in his early life running from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's possible. Certainly, he later runs from Paul and Barnabas, but finally, he ends up faithfully with Peter, approaching Peter's death in Rome, serving with Peter, writing his gospel, and also uh, one of the people Paul said was very useful to him in ministry. So, if you failed in your past, and who of us has not? We can get back up, repent of our sin, trust in Christ, and see that the Lord can still use us in great ways in this world to honor the Lord and bring others to Himself, even if we have failed uh, in different ways in our past. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank You for this very realistic and human story. Uh, It it is a bit of an embarrassment in some ways, and we are so glad that it is included in the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament authors are not ashamed of even the more embarrassing moments of the leaders of the early church and of the apostles. Lord, if You can use someone like Saul who killed Christians, if You can use someone like John Mark who at a time fell to perhaps timidity and cowardice and ran away from the mission… If you can turn around and use him to write one of the Gospels of the New Testament, if you can turn around and make him a fellow worker with Paul as he approaches death and martyrdom, if you can make him very useful in ministry for the Gospel, then, Lord, you can use any one of us if we will simply turn from our past failures and trust in your forgiving grace and your renewing and restoring mercy. God, I pray that you would help us not to be bogged down by past failure or even past success. God, I pray that with Paul we would say forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead, that we would press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And as Paul said, let all who are mature take such a view as this. So God, please use us, help us to repent, and help us to get back up and to continue following the Lord and use us in a great way uh, to help others in their conversion and in their growth and godliness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.